All right, let's go to our uh, scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 36 uh, to 41. It's in your bulletin online. It's also on the PowerPoint slide. You can also follow along in your Bible. Let me go ahead and read this for us. Acts chapter 2, 36 to 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Uh, we're continuing in our series, Worldview and wrapping up with the five points of Calvinism. And today we're landing on the letter I in the acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P, that stands for uh, ir irresistible grace. And here's what we've been learning each week. Um, that is, who is exactly doing what for our salvation? Okay. Uh, who is responsible for which aspect of my salvation? And we started with looking at man's state of total inability and depravity uh, and how, therefore, the Heavenly Father has to be unconditional in selecting and choosing those he would save and adopt into his family. He authored our salvation because we were helpless to author our own salvation. And we, last week, we looked at the role the, the eternal Son of God played in our atonement. He's the one who achieves, achieves our salvation. And therefore, he says on the cross, it is finished. And he didn't simply make it possible for people to choose into it. He said, it is finished. Not it is possible, it is finished. For those whom he came to save, his bride, salvation is accomplished. Today, we're landing on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and his role in irresistibly drawing God's people to him by God's grace. Meaning, uh, the Spirit is the one who applies salvation to us. Uh, the Father is the one who authors it, the Son is the one who achieves it, and the Spirit is the one who applies it. Okay? And, and it's really, as John the Baptist said, the more we learn about our salvation and about the gospel, God becomes greater and we become less. His glory increases and ours decreases. And one general principle I think you can hold on to, wherever you go, whatever church you may visit, whoever you read as a Christian resource, one way you know that this is biblical, one way you know this is centered on the truth is, does this make much of God or does this make much of man? If it makes much of God and it makes less of man, you're probably leaning into what the Bible has been teaching us about God's salvation. Authored by God, achieved by God, applied by God. Okay. Uh, but if it's the other way around, then you know it's deviating from what Scripture has been teaching us. And you know, you can see the, the logical flow of this too as we go on this series. It, if, as we learned last week, right, 
God didn't merely make salvation possible for all, but powerful for many, namely the sheep and the bride of Christ, then for those people, the many, the saving grace of God comes not in a possibly resistible way, but in a way that subdues our resistance and draws us to God irresistibly. That's the only way Jesus can logically say it is finished. Not it is possible, it is potential, it is likely, it is finished. The only way for that statement to be true and for Jesus not to be a liar, he must draw his bride to himself irresistibly. So salvation then, in other words, is not offered to us like a salesman offering you a product at your door. Right? It's very likely we would just slam the door on them, right? Or looking at a menu at a restaurant, and when the waiter suggests, would you like to, you know, add a side of grits for extra dollar, and you say no, right? It's not like that. It's not an option. It's more like, it's more like the affections coming from a pair of loving parents and, and offered and given to their children. Um, when they resist, when children resist a plate of nutritious food, uh, when children resist brushing their teeth, when children resist going to bed on time, right? when children resist, like, like it's hell, immunization shots, okay, you don't give in to their resistance. You subdue them. Why? Because that's love. You subdue their resistance. Okay. Let's look at a couple of things. Uh, one, does the Bible actually teach this? And I want to show you that it does. Let's get biblical and scriptural first and foremost because that's the most important thing. And then secondly, I want to apply it to real life and see how irresistible grace is not just taught biblically and scripturally, but how do we experience it? Okay, on an experiential level, how do we encounter irresistible grace? All right, so how it is uh, scriptural, okay, and how it is experiential. That's what we'll look at today. So first, uh, is this, in fact, what the Bible teaches us? Um, Let's look at our passage first. A passage from Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter goes on to say the very famous uh, statement, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, right? Now, the repent and be baptized is often taken out of context of verse 37. So it's very important that we look at what verse 37 says first. Notice here, it's the hearing of the gospel, right? And the heart change, being cut to the heart, that's what that means, that comes before, before they're doing. And not even their doing, it's even their intention of doing something. What shall we do? The, the gospel message and the conviction that's given to them in their hearts, the heart transformation comes before even the intention of doing something. They're not doing something just out of their own self-will or motivation. They were cut to the heart, right? And that produces the intention, doesn't it? What shall we do? It begins with the gospel and the heart transformation brought to us by the Spirit. As Jesus said in John chapter 16, 8, when the Spirit comes, what, what is he going to do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay. The, 
the way you gauge whether the Holy Spirit dwells inside you is primarily this, according to Jesus' own words, whether he convicts you of sin, the truthfulness of the gospel message, not whether there's this warm and fuzzy feeling inside and you sense some spiritual presence in the atmosphere. There's nothing in, like that in the Bible. The primary, the primary purpose of sending us the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, what does God say to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36? He says, when I give you a new heart and a new spirit, when I pour my spirit within you, that, that is when you will be caused, the literal word choice there is caused to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. It's not the other way around. It's not God saying, if you choose to obey me, if you just get your life together, then I will pour my spirit into your life. No, it's if I pour my spirit into your life, you will make changes. You will obey my commands. So back to our passage in Acts chapter 2, you see the same theme continuing. After the heart change and the spirits applying, applying the gospel, they intend to respond in some way. And then Peter invites them, okay, with your heart intention, with your heart already transformed, here's what you do. You repent and be baptized. And that's how every adult non-believer has to approach baptism. You have to gauge the heart. Are you repenting genuinely? And then receive the sign of baptism. That's for adult non-believers, not the children of believers who are part of the covenant as recognized by God, who, whom he includes as disciples, as children of the light, not pagans belonging to the darkness. That's not what we call our children. We, we count them as members of the body of Christ until they can confirm their faith, and the logic is the same. Grace comes before faith. Whether you're an adult or an infant, grace comes before faith. It's not our faith, our repenting and being baptized, producing God's grace. It's God's grace that actualizes whatever level of faith you have, whether you're a newborn infant or a 36-year-old adult. Grace comes before faith. That's what we see all throughout Scripture. Okay, why does he say then in verse 38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit if the Spirit has already worked on their hearts? You will, like future tense, you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's because in verse 38, if you look, people, the, the uh, people who are being addressed by Peter there is every person generally. It's a general call. Repent and be baptized Every one of you. That's the, that's the whole verse. Did every one of them repent and got baptized that day? No. It's a general call. Right? He's issuing a call to everyone generally, not speaking particularly or directly to those who have already experienced a heart change and already responded to the call. Or another way to put it, the, those who have responded effectually, effectually to the call. There's a mixture of general call and effectual call in this passage, and we have to be able to discern that to, to understand this in context. Remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew twenty two fourteen, Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. What does that mean? Everyone is going to hear, repent and be baptized. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? But who can truly come to respond to that? Those who are effectually called which are the chosen, the bride of Christ. Okay. There's an important distinction there we have to keep in mind. The general call that God gives to everyone and the effectual call that he, 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 he issues to irresistibly draw his bride to himself. Many are called, few are chosen. Okay. 
And, and then, list, so listen to this passage, back to our passage in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Okay, so this promise is for a particular group of people. Who are they? Everyone, not period, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Okay, this promise of a secure and definite salvation, authored by God, achieved by the Son, applied by the Spirit, this is meant for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself, effectually. Okay. The point here the apostle is trying to show us is, see how the Trinity is at work, working together here to achieve, author, achieve, and apply our salvation. Here's the, here's the other related passage on that. In John chapter 6, verse 44. Anybody remember what Jesus says there in John chapter 6, verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay. The prerequisite, right, is not unless they draw near to me, the Father will not choose them. That's not the call. It's not if you choose God first, he will then choose you, or meet God halfway, and he will meet you halfway. It is unless the Father draws him, no one can come to me. He's the active agent here. Again, the Trinity is at work. The Father who sent me, the Son, draws him. They're co-working to to make our salvation complete. Again, Uh, The more we dig into Scripture, the more we look at Old Testament and the New together as a whole and harmonize it, we see when it comes to salvation, it makes more and more and more and more of God, less and less and less and less of us. Okay, the the natural question at this point is, well, well, what about my will? What about my, my decision, my choice? Okay, here's where you have to clarify something for yourself. Irresistible grace does not mean God saves us against our will. It means, on the contrary, he makes us willing to comply to his call. He makes us willing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Will and to work for his good pleasure. This means God is not violating your will. He's transforming your will. He is conforming your will to his just as a parent as a parent i'm trying to conform my children's will to mine and until they get to a point where they actually think it's a good idea to to go to bed a certain time and brush their teeth before bed so so titus 3 verses 5 and 6 says this he saved us not because of works done by us but according to his own mercy by Listen to this, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Salvation doesn't come to us because we have made a decision, because we have had the good sense to, to come to some conclusion about God. It's because the Spirit's washing, regenerating, and renewal, whom he poured out on us richly. That's the Father pouring to us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, it's important that we understand this is the role of the Holy Spirit. He's not primarily engaged in our our lives to give us some very intense 
charismatic experience during worship or giving us the ability to, to speak in a language we didn't know how to speak before, that's almost, that's almost demoting the Holy Spirit to something less than He does. His primary role in redemptive history is to wash us, regenerate us, renew us so that we will be eternally saved. Apart from Him doing this, we have no hope. There's no greater work than that. And oftentimes, strangely enough, the Spirit's saving work, His role in our salvation is not highlighted as much. There is no other way that the death of some man in ancient Palestine 2,000 years ago can matter to us today, apart from the Holy Spirit. We have no power to time travel and somehow make that event and our current way of life one, apart from the help of the eternal Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He has to apply it to us. And therefore, we worship the Holy Spirit for it. We praise Him for it. We love Him for it. Because He applies salvation to us. Okay, notice something here as well. As we continue to expound on irresistible grace, do you notice how this doctrine, right, is not really given to us so that we would somehow intellectually process how salvation works, but the more you hear it, I hope you sense it, the more you hear it, doesn't, doesn't it make you love God more? Doesn't it make you see His work in your life more? And doesn't it make you appreciate how, how vast and how wise and how infinite His salvation is? goes beyond my decisions. It's, it's infinitely beyond that. Okay. I am helpless in my decision to apply what has happened to Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to my life today, to my heart today. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, the Father authoring, the Son achieving, and the Spirit applying. It's all about the triune God. Okay, that's Scripture, and I hope I gave you enough Scripture there, and there's more but for the sake of time, that's all I'm giving you for now. We have to harmonize the whole counsel of God to understand what salvation is. How is this experiential? Okay, let's look at that. Let's think about that. Here's what I want to do. I want to start with just a couple of excerpts from two conversion stories uh, coming from two atheists who then became a Christian. One by the late C.S. Lewis and one by a modern writer named Anne Lamott. So let me start with C.S. Lewis. He was a, a scholar from Oxford and Cambridge, and he, he authored the Chronicles of Narnia after his conversion. And in his book, Surprised by Joy, he describes a bit of his uh, conversion experience. So let me read this excerpt uh, for you. Quote, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shifting or shutting something out. Or if you like, I was wearing some stiff clothing or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the clothing meant the incalculable. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Okay, what's he saying there? Okay, I chose, 
but it's not as though it seemed possible to do otherwise. Okay. It, it, it's not like he feels like he made this deliberate, conscious choice. It's more like something was irresistibly drawing him to one direction. Right. He chose because he felt like he couldn't choose otherwise. It felt like giving in to someone, and that is to say surrendering to someone, almost reluctantly as well, because he knows the consequences of giving in to this God. Here's another quote from, from Anne Lamott. He, she's an American novelist. She's an essay writer, and uh, she, she used to be known most of her life for her sort of progressive, like, political activism, um, but later she writes about her conversion experience. So, I mean, she's still alive, so she would be kind of, she would be considered a, a, a newborn Christian or a baby Christian or something like that, but uh, amazing writer, and because, you know, she's a writer, she can be a little edgy and unfiltered, okay, but she's a sister in Christ, so let's lend her a gracious ear. Okay, here's her excerpt. Quote, I did not mean to be a Christian. I have been very clear about that. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus for the first time 12 years ago were, I swear to God, I would rather die. I really would have rather died at that point than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-wing, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. But I never felt like I had much choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up, mewling outside the door, you would eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. Of course, as soon as you do, the next thing you know, he's sleeping on your bed every night, stepping on your chest at dawn to play a little push-push. I resisted as long as I could. He wore me out. He won. I was tired and vulnerable, and he won. I let him in. This is what I said at the moment of my conversion. I said, okay, come in. I quit. Okay. A different account than Lewis's, but it echoes a similar theme, doesn't it? Right. Despite my passivity or even outright resistance, God has pursued me relentlessly with a gentle persistence, and I've surrendered to him. I've surrendered to the Savior who would not surrender in pursuing me. Okay. So, okay, God, you're God. I'm not. I can't live my way anymore. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your love. I need your cross. I need your commands to guide me. I give in. That's the common denominator. And that's essentially what a Christian testimony is about. It's not, see, see, I, I, I started to really put my life together, and God started to bless me, right? What's that, what's that line in Chance the Rapper? Uh, when prayers go up, blessings come down, right? It's like I started to put my life together, and then God started to bless me. That's not how it works. It's the other way around. Sorry, Chance. It's the, it's the, it's the reverse of that. When God begins to bless us, we begin to pray, when God begins to change us, we begin to worship. He's already working in you. He's already blessing you. And the evidence of that is you're drawing near to him. It's not you proving something to him. He's proving something to you. He's showing you, I'm in your life. I'm present. I'm working. He's being relentless. That's, that's the, the, the premise of every Christian testimony, at least adult testimony. 
And, and presupposed underneath this doctrine, irresistible grace, is something we studied in the beginning too, right? Remember, um, as it says in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God. It cannot submit to God, right? Or Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. We're helpless. We're helpless to, to sort of lift ourselves by our own bootstraps and then have God meet us halfway. We're, that's, that's a helpless path towards salvation. We're totally debilitated by sin. The point of total depravity, right, remember is this. If we can resist God, we always will. If we can, we will resist him. So what must God do to save us? Overcome, <laughs> overcome our resistance. Because left to our own selves and our ability to resist him, we will always resist. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the, that's the hymn that we sing. So what's the answer? Bind my wandering heart to thee. Right, that's the answer. Like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Okay. When it comes to coming into a genuine personal relationship with God, what we need is not God meeting us halfway. Right? And us trying to meet him halfway. We're not praying for some assistance from God. We're praying for nothing less than a complete, total heart transformation to become a new creation, going from dead to life. The Bible is very clear on this. God must conquer our stubbornness, our resistance, our hardness of heart, or we will not be saved. If it's up to us to, to choose him, we never will. If it's up to us to cease our resistance, we never, will never cease. He must come, conquer our hearts, transform our hearts, give us new hearts. He must save us, not possibly, but powerfully. So Thomas Watson put it like this. He, he loves the doctrine of irresistible grace. So he says, God so calls as he allures. He does not force, but draw. The freedom of the will is not taken away, but the stubbornness of it is conquered. The freedom of the will is not taken away. The stubbornness of it is conquered. And as it says in Psalm 110, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. This is the experience of irresistible grace. I wasn't forced, I was drawn. Irresistibly drawn to the beauty of God's love. That's what it feels like to experience God's irresistible grace. We talk like this too when we talk about human love. I fell in love with so and so. Right? What does that mean? I mean, you fell in love, like you tripped over something by accident, like you didn't intend it, right? We, we, we describe even human love as if, as if it was beyond just our free will or free choice, but something we were drawn, drawn to choose irresistibly. And here's the opposite side's dilemma, okay? That, what I've described so far, again, is the Calvinist view, how he ex expounded scripture, but there are those who disagree the Arminian view, and I think you have a dilemma here because you believe, you would believe as, Ar as an Arminian that God wants to save everyone, God offers everyone his grace, 
But God is only making it possible, but never actually definite and powerful. So, so if God wants to save little Johnny, and little Johnny's resisting, uh, then God becomes resistible, and God lets go. He lets go of Johnny. He walks away. Think about the implication of that. What are you saying when you say, I, I can resist God? I'm more, I'm more powerful than him in a sense, aren't I? Right? My will to resist God is more powerful than his will to save me. Both of these are huge biblical and logical problems for the other side. The good news of the gospel is this, that your resistance cannot overcome God's purpose for you, God's intention to save you. It cannot derail his plan to save his bride, the church. The grace of God applied by the Holy Spirit to the many, to the chosen, is irresistible in the sense that it is invincible. You can't undo it. You can't overcome it. That's what the goodness of the good news is. It's not that you can gain it and lose it or it's up to you to gain it, but that's not really good news at all. But if if God has set his heart on you, you can never be lost. God has forever chosen his people. The Son has forever atoned for his people. The Spirit has forever drawn his people and applied salvation to them. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what the psalmist says, and that's what that means. Okay, here's another important experiential aspect to this, and we'll close with, with some thoughts on this, and that is regarding our evangelism. This is a huge point to understand regarding our evangelism because I think a lot of our hindrance when it comes to evangelism today has to do with our misunderstanding of this doctrine. Here's a question. If God draws people to himself irresistibly, why evangelize? Why evangelize anyone? If God, you know, doesn't irresistibly draw, right, I'll fail, so what's the point? I should let him handle all the evangelism, right? It's a reasonable question at first, okay? You get, to, you get, a, you get one chance to ask that question, and then once you get the answer, you have to stop asking that question because <laughs> it's, it's a reasonable thing to raise at first, okay? There are a lot of answers to this. For one, our evangelism can be turned into an idol very quickly when we base it on our success and not our obedience to God's commands. Because think about what that means. When we, when we question, I'll fail anyway if, if, if God doesn't irresistibly draw. Why do it? You're focused on your success rate, not what God has commanded you to do. Aren't you? So what does that mean? Evangelism, from your point of view, is about your glory. How good are you at it? How successful are you at it? So if, I'm, if I have a higher success rate, then I'll do it. But if chances seem low, right? Chance of rain and thunderstorm high, I won't go out right? Because you made it about your glory, how you would feel if you get rejected, rather than what has God called you to do? When we make evangelism about us, we make it an idol, something we do for our own glory, not for God's glory, then we miss the whole point, and eventually you'll stop doing it period. You'll stop evangelizing, period, because you have other ways of achieving glory. (laughs) 
you have much better ways of achieving self-glory than chancing rejection by talking to a non-Christian about the gospel. If the glory of yourself is the purpose, you will stop evangelism, period. Here's the other point. When you think about the glory of God, and it's for the sake of his glory and his, his o- obedience to his commands that you go, then you realize, you know, when, when people receive the gospel, we praise God for his mercy, but you also understand when people reject the gospel permanently, let's say, God is glorified by his justice. God is, glor- God is glorified by having been patient with that person, by offering the gospel to that person. The glory of God is displayed through his mercy as well as his justice. So just because someone rejects you, doesn't mean God isn't glorified. He is. He will be through his justice. Okay? If you're focused on the glory of God, you have reason, every reason to continue evangelism, whether your success rate is high or low. But if you're focused on your own glory, again, eventually you'll stop evangelism altogether. Here's perhaps a more encouraging sounding point, though. Irresistible grace actually makes more sense of evangelism, not less. Here's why. If the success of evangelism is ultimately up to God and his irresistible grace, it's not up to me, then it encourages me to actually go out and do more evangelism. Why? Because it's not up to how perfectly I present the gospel and how persuasive I am and whether I have all the answers to everyone's questions that someone gets saved. It is not up to me. God can use someone like Moses who had a speech impediment to bring about his purpose. It's not up to me, therefore I can go. It's the Spirit of God working through the gospel, and so I'm just going to have the, have the gospel in hand and heart of obedience on the other and go. Think about how discouraging this is, right? To think, to think that so-and-so's salvation has everything to do with how well I present it, how, how well I present the gospel, how persuasive I am, how many good answers I have to tough questions, right? How discouraging that is towards your evangelism. But see, if you understand it's ultimately not up to you and your abilities to bring someone into the kingdom of God, but God's irresistible grace, then you understand your part is simply to obey and be discipled and go, right? Being discipled and trained is part of God's command, so you obey that part too, and then you go. Even to that neighbor that you think just has no chance. (laughs) You're like, that guy is like way out there, right? There's no point of, no, there's every point because it's not up to how you perceive the likeliness of things, but it's up to the grace of God. No matter how anti-church your coworker is, uh, no, no matter how seriously wounded uh, your friend has been by the church in the past, right? or, or no matter how uh, a pagan or secular that, that city or culture or, or country is that you thought about going on a mission trip to, you can go anywhere, reach anyone with the gospel if you believe in irresistible grace. But as, you, as, as soon as you start thinking, it's up to me, my persuasiveness, my ability to communicate in a cogent presentation, then you're playing, you're, you're calculating now, right? How likely is that guy? Unlikely. How like, okay, there's a low-hanging fruit. I'll go for that. And you miss over guys like Saul. 
the, the greatest persecutor of the church who God drew to himself irresistibly by his grace and became the greatest missionary who ever lived. You overlook people like that when you judge how obedient you are going to be towards the Great Commission based on your own abilities, not based on the irresistible grace of God. Do you see how believing in the irresistible grace of God actually enhances your, encourages your evangelism? It's up to God, not you, not me. Think about this. How should you even pray for non-believers? Let's say you have a non-believing uh, a sibling, parent, friend, coworker, neighbor, and, and you just want to begin by praying for them, praying for their souls. How should you pray? God, change their hearts, but not if they resist. <laughs> not if they reject you by their own free choice, then leave them alone, because you shouldn't mess with people's free will. Is that how? Nobody prays like that, right? No Arminian prays like that. We all pray for God to subdue their will and overcome their resistance, don't we? God, do what you did for Saul, for this, for this person, for this neighbor, for this friend. Do what you did for doubting Thomas. Do what you did for that father struggling with unbelief. Draw them near to you by changing their hearts. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. So irresistible grace makes sense, makes better sense of why we evangelize, why we obey the Great Commission, and why we even pray. Why we even pray for the lost. Let me close by uh, sharing this sonnet with you. Um, that's what an English major is good for, right? Like, I, I know a couple more sonnets than you might have heard of. Uh, this is an excerpt from John Donne's Holy Sonnet. I'll spare you the whole thing, just read you a couple of um, lines from that sonnet. I, like an usurped town to another due, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Yet dearly I love you and would, loved, would be loved fain, but am betrayal, betrothed unto your enemy. You hear that? I love you, I want to be loved by you, but I'm betrothed, I'm engaged to be married to your enemy. So listen to what he says next. Divorce me. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, never chaste except you ravish me okay right this is not just a sonnet right this is a prayer this is a sinner's prayer praying out of his own sense of helplessness sense of hopelessness sense of not desiring god enough he resists god so he prays that god would overcome all of that he, he has trouble surrendering to god so he asks god to subdue him I'm not going to raise my white flag voluntarily. Please come and invade my heart, is his prayer. And you can tell he's been praying this for a long time, because that's how you end up writing a sonnet about anything. <laughs> it's, it's if you've been thinking about something for a very, very long time. He's been praying this for a long time, and he's just putting into a more organized right, structure in a sonnet with couplets and things like that for others to read about. 
But this has been probably a lifelong prayer for him. A lifelong struggle of just not desiring God enough, not feeling like he's able to surrender fully to him. But I want to encourage you with this because this is a real person with a real prayer and a prayer that I would say God truly honors. It's a prayer that makes much of God and less of man. Pray that kind of prayer wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Whatever you might be wrestling with, pray the kind of prayer that makes much of him and less of yourself. If you have this grace, that's great. As believers, we have to deepen our fellowship with the Holy Spirit by walking with him, walking in step with God's commands, and bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5. That's actually how you know he's actually with you if you're living fruitful. If you don't have this grace, if you're not sure if you have this grace, pray this prayer. Ask. Knock. And seek. Until the door opens to you because he promised it will be open to you. He promised it will be open to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for being the author of our salvation. We thank you for sending us your Son who achieved for us our salvation. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who applied this salvation to us. From beginning to the end, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, it is not us who offer to you our faith. It's you who gives it to us by your grace. Lord, if our prayers have been reversed and twisted, unbiblical, um, restore us. Restore a proper joy in our salvation from you and by you. And Lord, in our moments of helplessness even and hopelessness, uh, may we seek out your salvation that is able to save when we are unable, that is helpful to us when we feel helpless, that offers us hope when we feel hopeless. Lord, we thank you that you make much of yourself through your word so we may see that there's a better way than making much of ourselves. So help us to, Lord, walk a different path if that's been the path we've been walking and help us to make more of you and less of ourselves. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.